Thanks for being flexible. Uh, as Andy mentioned, even before you guys got here, our God is sovereign, and uh, he knew <laughs> he had different plans in the park, and so we're going to go with those because they're better, and that's the way he would have it. And so we're grateful to be here, whether it's here or in the park. Our God does not dwell in houses made of men. Uh, we can worship him anywhere, and what a privilege Bill will worship him here tonight. Amen? Amen. I always enjoy singing with you guys. I almost don't like stopping to sing sometimes to teach, although I love teaching. I love singing with you guys as well. So Andy gave some great background. That's where we're at. That's what we're doing. We're talking about our Lord, our great God and King. And if you stop to think about it, that same Lord and King is the one who picked up dirt and made man. And he took rib out of the man and made woman. He breathed breath into him. That same God is the one who blew the stars and created the stars and know them, knows them by name. And that same God is the one who not just created all those things, but Paul tells us in Colossians that he upholds them. He sustains them. So he not just created them once, but he is in a constant state of sustaining everything. Were God to stop sustaining everything, it would collapse at once. It would cease to be. So God doesn't just create and speak things into creation. He sustains them. And that's a great God we sing to. That's a great God we talk about. And that's a great God we pray to and live our lives. Hopefully as living sacrifices too. Holiness, justice, righteousness. Those are three of the things we talked about. And last week I challenged you guys to do something pretty difficult and just think about God and not yourselves. Because we're pretty selfish creatures. We want to think about how everything has to do with us. And I challenge you to think about how if God didn't create you, He would be the same. He is immutable. That is, He is unchanging. And so He would not cease. He would not be any different than He is now. He would still be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly merciful, perfectly loving perfectly kind, perfectly good. He would still be exactly as He is. Um, But the fact is, He did create us. He did create us. And so He has given a venue or an avenue for His justice, His righteousness to be shown, for Him to get glory for Himself through simple creatures like you and I. The truth is, He did create us. And so just viewing God without His impact on man, is not really the full picture. And so tonight we do get to do that. We do get to take the privilege of looking at who God is and how that affects us. Um, I have some handouts, and I'm going to hand these out. What happens when I hand things out? You don't listen to me, you look at them. So I'm going to hand them out, and we're going to go through them as we go. But please, please don't jump way ahead. Please don't get so far ahead of yourself that you... uh, and start reading this so you're not paying attention at all. We'll get to it. Don't jump. I give you like three. It doesn't do much good. I cause you to walk in my ways, says God. I will cause you to walk in my ways. So what does God's righteousness, God's perfect character have to do with you and I? Well, in reading, studying, and growing as a believer, it's vital to understand. Listen, it's vital. It's critical to understand that the relation between content and application. Between content and application. Between content and application. Between 
theology and having that theology fleshed out. In fact, Paul spends the first three letters of Ephesians without one exhortation at all. It is entirely theology. It is entirely background. It is entirely information. It's not until, I think, chapter 4, verse 1, that Paul gives his first exhortation. Now, you see the translators put in exhortations in there. Also, a lot of that is one long running on sentence. But he spends the last three chapters of Ephesians giving commands, giving exhortations, giving challenges, applying that theology that he's just created. So much of studying and teaching, much of learning about the Bible, much of interpreting the Bible can be boiled down to two questions. Two questions. One, what did God intend to communicate through this text? What does He mean to say? What does He mean to articulate? What does He mean to communicate through the writer, through the text, into our lives? Question two, how does that truth affect me? How does it affect the way I live? How does it affect the way I think, I breathe, I walk, I eat, I do everything? How does that truth affect me? How does that come to bearing on my life? Does that make sense? What does this mean in the text? What does this mean in my life? What does this mean in the Bible? How can I correctly interpret this? And what does that mean in my life? There's one correct interpretation. There's many possible applications from that correct interpretation. Oftentimes you get talks heavy on content, that load you up with content but are short on the application. Or other times you get preaching that confirms that you're not loving God enough, you're not doing this enough, you're not doing this enough. And it really drives that into your head, but it gives you no instruction on how you ought to do that. I know I'm not loving God. I see that, but how am I supposed to do that? What is the instruction from the Word in that? I prefer not to use the word balance in this. I think that's our fallback as Christians. We go, well, we need balance in this. We need balance in that. We need balance in that. I don't want you to view this as balance. In fact, as we talk about worshiping in spirit and truth or, um, or truth and grace or those kinds of things, I think we get it wrong if we see it as a balance. It is fully both. It is fully grace and it is fully truth. It is fully spirit and it is fully truth. It is fully content and it is fully application. It's not half application and half truth. It's fully both. Last week, as I mentioned, we we worked hard at not going so much on ourselves but on focusing on our God. However, obviously that's not the way it is. Truth is what who God is, what He is, what He's done and what He's doing has a massive impact, a massive bearing on what we've observed. And that affects the way we think, act, live, breathe, and even die. So living the gospel without knowing it is obviously an impossibility. Likewise, knowing the gospel without living it, I would submit to you as an impossibility. Let me say that again. Living the gospel without knowing it is obviously an impossibility. Likewise, knowing the gospel without living it is an impossibility as well. Partly that's why there's so much confusion. We say we know the gospel, but it's not manifest in our lives. Often we hear the analogy transferring from heart knowledge to head knowledge, or head knowledge to heart knowledge. I want to ask you again to set that dichotomy aside in hopes of a better way. The muscle in your chest is doing just what God made it to do. It's pumping blood. And I think we're all 
too often we divorce intellect from application. We divorce what's going on in our minds from what's fleshing out in our body. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now listen to this. I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. When God saves a man, his word says that he causes or makes that man to walk in his ways. And he will be careful to observe his statutes. So if you can imagine these last three weeks somehow condensed into one massive message, you'll succeed better in understanding both content and application, and that they must be in harmony, that they're not enemies, but that they're allies. Knowledge and application may not be so very different as you think. So then we learn tonight, try not to we learn tonight to try not to part and parcel things out in your mind and separate knowledge from application. We've learned that God is exalted in holiness, He's lifted up in justice, and He's worshipped in righteousness. Knowing these things, and I want I don't want to make it just a semantics issue, not just a play on words. But what I'm saying is if you really get this, if you really get this, it cannot help but be fleshed out in your life. Look on your sheet and what's I've written in bold there. Remember, this is the thesis from last week. A right view of God beautifies and promotes worship of Christ and the gospel. Appreciating the character of God is paramount to understanding, loving, growing in, and being sanctified by and through the gospel. We must start with a right view of God. If we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, if we are to be holy as He is holy, we must start with a correct view of Him. If we try and apply things without getting them right first, we just apply the wrong thing. And so often you see that. So often we just take a text and do what we want with it and then apply it to our lives. But if we don't get the content right, we miss the application. By the grace of God, hopefully in these last two weeks, we've gotten some content. We've established some content. And now we look at how that content has bearing on your life. We've made some pretty bold claims. That is, Andy and I have made some pretty bold claims about how we hope to help you apply this to your workplace, to your classroom setting, to your friendships, to your relationships, to your marriages, and to your own mind. But instead of turning away from the Word for application, we return to the Word. And we look through it to see its implications on our life. I remember times after hearing someone explain a passage or explaining a passage to someone, them going, okay, but give me something I can apply. I hope that you'll see tonight that Scripture is applicable. That we can apply Scripture. That we don't need to go extracurricular. I want you to see that Scripture is practical. In the end, in the end, it will be up to you to see, to see how this fleshes out in your life. In the end, it will be up to you to make sure that this fleshes out. So, I want to talk about just a few areas. The first one is testing. What does the character of God what does the character of God have to do with our life? Well, the first one the Bible tells us is testing. One of the most notable things about the righteousness of God is that our own righteousness, our own righteousness, that is our own right living, ought to be testimony of being in God. 1 John 2.29 says this, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of, of Him. 
1 John 3, 7 says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Our own moral practice is evidence of who is our master. Does that make sense to you? John is the apostle of love, and I think John is also the apostle of black and white. Well, you read through 1 John, and John paints things so clearly, so carefully, but so clearly. That means if you call yourself call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet live in a habitual, that's what practice here means, a habitual life of sin, you should have reason to pause and think and question, am I really in Christ? If God is righteous and as His child I'm called to imitate Him, then my life ought to be a reflection, not perhaps in magnitude, but at least in part of that righteousness. You can't go much further tonight without coming to grasp with this truth. The word practice is very important here. This is not to say that a true believer can't sin. It's not to say that a true believer can't even fall and rebel. But it is to say that if a true believer is indeed a true believer, he'll be restored. God will lovingly discipline. He will bring him back and he will imitate his righteousness in his life. Look at the title of your sheet. I will cause you to walk in my ways. Why? Because your spirit, his spirit is within us. However, God says, or excuse me, John says, because God is righteous, He calls His children into it. Therefore, if somehow, if someone is really a believer, they will practice righteousness. Does that make sense to you? That's the first application on our life. We're so quick to go to Matthew seven one and say, "Judge not, lest ye be judged." But we forget just a few chapters later, Jesus says, "Don't judge with an outward appearance, but make a righteous judgment." That is to say, in the body of Christ, we ought to be discerning and loving with one another. If we see our brother and sister in sin, James tells us we ought to go to him and restore him. We ought to lovingly restore him. We ought to go to him and help him or her and help them. Does that make sense to you? I'm not saying, and John's certainly not saying, that a believer ought to live in perfection, but he is saying a believer's life is characterized by righteousness. How does God's character play out on our life? The second area is obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10 says this, So we make it our goal. Listen to what Paul says here. Ever want to know what Paul wants to do in this life? What he lived for? Here's one of the things Paul lived for. So we make it our goal to please Him. Capital H. We make it our goal to please Him. Whether we are home in the body or away from it, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Second Peter three eleven through 14 Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In the holy, or excuse me, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt in intense heat, but according to His promise, that is God's promise, we are looking for a new heavens, and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless. And blameless. Peter says the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. And one day everyone will stand before a throne. So we ought to be diligent to be found by him in peace and spotless and blameless. His character ought to inspire obedience in us. 
Psalms 96 verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Really, this seems like the only reasonable thing to do when confronted by the true character of God, doesn't it? To tremble before Him. To reverently fear Him. Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Habakkuk 2.20 But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 1 and through 1 and 2 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God go near and listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong do not be quick with your mouth do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth so let your words be few What does this all mean It means simply that we ought to have a healthy fear of God, knowing that even as His children, we are to be found in fear and reverence of Him. Do not come hastily before the Lord. Let me help remind you of a couple places you and I do this. Musical worship. We talk about this on our team uh, with the men and women helping lead worship music. We don't come hastily before the Lord. We don't just rush in nonchalant. A lot of you listen to Christian radio and so you have these songs stuck in your head when you come in and be easy just to rush before the Lord. But we come before Him with reverence and awe. We come before Him with care. Prayer. Prayer. How often have you and I rushed into prayer and just said, Oh Lord, here's my shopping list. Won't you do some of this? Now, we can come before the Lord fully and openly And yet we ought to give pause for just a moment to think on who God is, to think on who we're talking to. The one who breathed Adam, life into Adam. The one who took the rib and made a woman. The one who put the stars in the sky. The one who knows the hairs on your head. This means we ought to be terribly careful about the kinds of jokes we tell. The kind of jokes we tell. Friends, be very, very careful about joking about God. I know maybe that hits a sensitive spot with you, but boy, the hair ought to stand up on the back of your net when someone tells a flippant joke about our Lord and Master. He's not one to be trifled with. We're dealing with the King of the universe. It means as His image bears, that aside from nature, that is what's around us, speaking of God, the things that some people may see of God's, Character is you. The first thing or the thing outside of creation that people might see about God is you. Why? Because you're His image bearer and I'm His image bearer. What a responsibility. So, say your boss comes up to you at work. And he says, uh, Mitch, boy, we're really behind on shipments. We're really behind. We need you to push it. And to do that, we're going to have to break just, just some minor code. We're behind, and if we don't get things going, well, we're just not going to make it. What are you going to do? Is your fear of God going to rule out, or is your fear of man going to rule out? Fearing God ought to trump all other fear, including the fear of man. Remember Matthew 10.28? I got this verse wrong for so long. Let me read it to you. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I thought for so long that was a lowercase h. Who can destroy soul and body in hell? Capital H. Our Lord and Master and King. So do not fear those around us. Do not fear our peers who can kill the body but not the soul, but fear Him. Fear the Lord Almighty, God of heaven and earth, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What does the character of God have to do with the way you and I live? Well, the character of God ought to inspire trust, joy, and confidence. We have to trust Him because He cares for us, protects us, and keeps us. Isaiah 42.6 says this, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Matthew 6.25-33 talks about how He clothes the lilies of the field and He feeds the birds of the air. And how much more precious to God are His children than the birds and the lilies. How much more will He take care of you and I? Knowing his character and the character of the body ought to give us a great comfort in the spiritual and physical provisions that God gives us. Can you believe that he actually inspired Isaiah to write these things? Let me read it again. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. What a promise. What a thing, really, that the master of the universe promises this towards his children. Just last night, Andy and I were having dinner. We get together once a week and uh, fellowship and hang out. And We had dinner at their new place, and we were riding around the yard with the bikes. And Well, Rhett and Jack were. Andy and I weren't. But um, Rhett went down the hill on his bicycle, and Rhett's almost ready to take the training wheels off. And Andy was with Rhett, and I was with Jack, and Jack was behind him on the tricycle, and I was kind of helping Jack along, and we came to a hill, and I didn't pay close enough attention. Well, Jack went down that hill on his tricycle, and he went from a crawling speed to really fast, and the, the pedals on the trike turned. I ran down the hill, and I grabbed his arm, and I <laughs> picked him up just before he crashed. Now, it still scared him. I should have been paying better attention, but it made me think of something. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. How many times have we been heading towards a wreck and we go down a hill and God runs and He grabs our arm and He holds us up just before we crash? He says, I will hold you by the hand and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. That is the Lord that we worship. One who loves us and cares for us and holds us by the hand. God inspire in us joyfulness and thanks. Psalms 96, 10-13 says this, Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult. Everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with faithfulness. Why is all of nature worshiping God? What's the end say? Because He comes to judge the earth. The fact that God judges, if you're a true believer, ought to not inspire a fear of damnation in you, but a joyfulness and a worshiping and a praise. Does that make sense? 
we have to take great joy in the fact that God judges justly. Remember what we talked about last week? A God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, and yet was not good, was not good, would be a terrible monster of a creature. And yet because we know that our God is just and good, even in His all-powerfulness, we can rejoice in His justice. We can take great joy in His justice because we know that the penalty has been paid. Let's talk about the popular response to uh, Kyle, how are you today? I tell you what, and, and you tell me if you're right. When you go around town or you see your friends and you ask them, how are you today? What's the number one response? Yeah, not even good. Man, I'm busy. I am so busy. And it's true, we're busy creatures, but it's popular to say we're busy, isn't it? I want people to know that i got a lot going on right now. I'm busy. How you doing? I'm busy. <laughs> i got a lot going on. I'm pretty important. Are you? Oh, yeah, I'm really worn out. I'm just, I'm really tired, and I just am important. That's what we want people to know in the back of our minds. I was thinking on that this week, and I was reflecting on what Jim Elliott says in his book. I remember him writing in there, even the language he used. I was splitting the sheets pretty late at night, he was saying. Up late, up early. He was tired, he was worn out, and we've all been there. But he says, I don't want anyone to know just how tired I am, just how busy I am, because I don't want anyone to think that my master is cruel. Because I worship a kind master. I worship a good master, one who is just and holy and righteous and merciful and kind. And if I walk around with my head moped down, talking about how busy and tired and miserable I am all the time, guess who that's a reflection of? Remember I said you're an image bearer. An image bearer. So let's take it into application. How miserable are you really? And why are you miserable? Is it because you serve a miserable master? kind of master do we serve? A beautiful master, a wonderful master, a kind master. It's a challenge for my own heart as well. I hope that that will change the way you respond to people, how you think about people, to guard our words as we talk about how busy and important we are. (laughs) We're not really that busy or that important. It ought to inspire confidence and patience. Romans 12.19 says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Peter 2.23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What happened when, when the beard... The hairs on his beard were pulled when they spit in his face when they hit him and said, prophesy, who hit you now? What did he do? He went silent like a sheep to the slaughter. He turned the other cheek. Andy talked about when you get cut off in traffic. I'll be real with you. Traffic is an area where I really struggle. I want to get from place to place fast. And the neighboring car can't hear you. And so what are you saying? No, really, what are you saying out loud? Or what are you saying in your heart or in your head? That's God to repay. Now, traffic's just a simple little pitiful example. And yet, when people revile you, when they hurt you, when they say all kinds of evil against you, rejoice and be glad. For great, great will be your name in heaven. Leave room for the justice of God. 
Leave room for the wrath of God. It inspire confidence and patience in you because guess whose job it is to get people back? Not yours. If you want everybody to get what they should get, then you'd be getting it too. And He would destroy your body and soul in hell. So praise God that you don't get what you get. Amen? What is the character of God? What does that have to do with our life? The next one is it ought to inspire worship. We ought to worship Him because He is worthy. Psalms 145, 6-7 They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to some. No, the Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. What a beautiful verse. Daniel 4.37 Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are true and His ways are just and is able to humble all those who walk in pride. Seven years Nebuchadnezzar spent on his hands eating grass. And it says his fingernails grew long like the eagles. I was just reading this. And finally God wakes him up and brings him out of his insanity. And what's he say? He says, oh, not woe is me that I spent seven years on my hands eating grass like a cow. He says, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. I wonder if he was thinking he could have left me that way for the rest of my life. He could have sent me to hell for eternity. But he didn't and praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. He worshipped him. Revelation 15 Verse three through four, verses 3-4, through four, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the servant of the Lamb, saying this, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Revelation 14.7 And he said to them in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Isaiah 12 Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 147.1 Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. I could go on and on and on. I deleted so many of these verses. We just don't have time. The character of God ought to inspire in your life and my life reverent worship for God. Psalm 147.1, the last one I read, says at the end, A song of praise is fitting. It's only fitting to give worship to our great God. As you grow to know someone more and more, you either grow to like, appreciate, and take interest in them more and more, or less and less. Have you ever thought about that? Think about the people in your circles, the people you're exposed to, the people you spend time around. As you get to know them more and more, you either love, appreciate, and know them. You grow fond of them either more and more or less and less. Friends, brothers and sisters, it's no different with God. As you come to know Him more, as you come to know Him more, you come to grow and appreciate, to love Him and to worship Him more and more. Now, don't get me wrong. 
your worship problem isn't an ignorance problem. It's not that you don't know enough about God to worship Him. And yet, just like your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your family, as you come to know them more and more, hopefully you fall deeper and deeper in love with them. And what a pitiful example for so much more it is with our great God and King. Hebrews talks about being living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Are you being a living sacrifice? Are you being a living sacrifice in your workplace, in your classroom, in your family, in your relationships, in your marriage? The list goes on and on. Well, how do I do that? Let's talk about a way you can do that. How does the character of God impact our life? The next way is proclamation. Proclamation. Psalm 40, verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Listen, when you really, really like someone, you cannot shut up about them, can you? You just start, right? How much more it ought to be with our great God. You realize what I mean? The psalmist isn't going, woe is me, I've got to talk about and proclaim and preach God. He's going, I have not hidden your righteousness in my heart. It's almost to say, how could I hide your righteousness? How couldn't I talk about you? Christ tells us that our words, our speech is the overflow of our heart. If our heart is infatuated with God, proclaiming Him will be the natural result. Does that make sense? If your heart, if your mind, if your self, if your being is infatuated with God, you can't help but proclaim Him. You can't help but talk about Him. You can't help but sing about Him. You can't help but think about Him. Psalm 71, verses 15 through 16. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. I can't even understand it. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness and yours alone. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145, verse 6 and 7. They speak of your might, of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Beautiful psalm. They want to eagerly utter God. They want to eagerly talk about Him. Do you eagerly want to talk about God? Is He the overflow of your heart? Jeremiah nine twenty three through 24 Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I was meeting with a group downstairs of older people one time to pray before we went downtown to the Christmas stroll. Some of you remember that. And we were talking about, this is what we're going to do. This is what we get to do. And one gentleman brought up this. Really what we're doing is we're just proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. He mean that in a demeaning way. What he meant is, 
evangelism is, is, is nothing more than this. I am proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. That is my great privilege. I want to utter the excellencies of Christ. How often do you take God's word in boasting of knowing Him? Let me ask you this. Someone gives you one chance to tell about yourself. What is it going to be? What are you going to talk about? You've got 30 seconds. If you could wrap up you, what are you going to talk about? Are you going to boast of your accolades? Are you going to boast of your school? Are you going to boast of your work? Are you going to boast of this? That I know the Lord, the God of heaven. And what's more, He knows me and He upholds me by His righteous right hand. You know the Lord that practices justice, righteousness, and steadfast love. Your obedience, we talked about this one above, paired with your proclamation ought to result in a good witness. Not just a good witness, a great witness. Let me say that again. Listen. Don't miss this. Your obedience, which we'd already talked about, the character of God should inspire, matched with or paired with your proclamation ought to result in the best witness or a good witness. Your lifestyle ought to back up what you said. I don't want to go off on a tangent here. I've been, I've harped on this before, what old St. Francis of Assisi said. Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. Rubbish. Okay? Don't listen to that. Preach the gospel always and don't let your life contradict it. Your obedience paired with your proclamation ought to result in a wonderful witness of the Lord. You ought to speak. You ought to utter the proclamation of God in your life ought to back up that witness. It's a high charge, isn't it? A tough thing. And yet that's the privilege that we're called to is to proclaim His excellencies. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How else, friends, how else will they know unless you tell them? How else will they know? Last one. What does the character of God have to do with your life? It ought to cause a faith shift. A faith shift from yourself to Christ. It should give us confidence in Christ alone. Romans 5.1 says there, this, Therefore, or in light of these things, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we know and understand and become to realize and come to grips with the character of God, it ought to cause a total and utter faith shift in your life, life from any self-reliance totally unto God. If God is totally just, righteous, pure, good, holy, kind, merciful, then there's no point in trusting yourself. You must put it all in Christ. Hebrews 10.17-23 says this, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is doubtful? No. Let it never be said. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It comes back to the character of God. Your faith ought to shift totally onto God. Why? Because He's faithful. And you're not. And neither am I. You're utterly unfaithful. 
Ultimately, this means that we can commit all our ways to the Lord. I want you to turn with me finally to Psalms 37, verses 5 through 6. Psalm 37, verses 5 through 6. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Or your justice, some of your versions say, as the noonday. True understanding of God cannot be divorced, cannot be separated, cannot be unpaired with the application to your life. Because God is true, because He is noble, because He is righteous and holy in all these things, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That's how it applies to you. God is the just, and He is the justifier, and He will bring about your justice and your righteousness through our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. True understanding, brothers and sisters, cannot be divorced from applying I cannot make you drink down or digest these truths tonight. But I hope, I hope to see you wrestling to initiate our Lord's righteousness, or excuse me, to imitate our Lord's righteousness, and practice His justice, and ultimately to have an unshakable certainty that our Lord can and must be trusted, loved, obeyed, and even enjoyed. So what's it got to do with you and I? It's got everything to do with you and I. What a great master. What a kind Lord we serve. Would you pray with me together? Father, even now I don't want to rush too quickly before you. I see and know and believe that you are king of all the universe. So Lord, thank you that we get to learn that you are king. That we get to apply those things to our life. You ought to be our fear and you ought to be our dread, Lord, not man. Help us to proclaim you. Help us to be certain about you and that our righteousness is upheld in Christ alone. Lord, you will bring forth our righteousness and you will bring forth our justice because that's just who you are. You are holy above all things. You are entirely other. You are entirely perfect, Lord. Thank you for letting us learn about you, Lord. You say you will cause us to walk in in your ways, Lord. I know that's not separate from our effort, from our part. But Lord, make us, help us to walk in your ways. We want to imitate you. We want to bring you glory, Lord. Help us to do that. We pray these things together. We request these things of you, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. You'll see on your sheet there that at the bottom there's some questions. And rather than breaking into groups tonight, I want you to take some time alone to reflect on these things. How does your life match up with 1 John 2.29 and 1 John 3.7? Do you have a healthy fear of God? Or do you fear something or someone more than you fear God? Does understanding God more and more make you more joyful or gloomy? Are you proclaiming as an overflow of your heart God's name and character? 
Where are some places where you can do this? Where are some places where you can proclaim God's name? Has coming to terms with God's character caused you to rest more in Christ for your salvation? Why? So I want you just to grab your chair or not grab your chair, just scatter. You can go anywhere in the room or if you want to, you can go out in the back hallway. I'm just going to give you some time alone to pray through these things, to think through these questions. Uh, There's some pens in the back. You can write down things on your sheet. At the end, when you hear Evan and his guitar up here again, it's time to come back in. We're going to sing one more song together. Okay? So take some time to reflect on these things. Go. Cool.